And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello and welcome fellow list nerds. I am your host Jason Kleberg and this is the Force 5 Podcast, a show which forces my guests to come up with a movie themed top 5 list and then we reveal our picks on air. I've got a really great guest tonight in Thomas Stoneham Judge, a film critic and editor-in-chief at Movies For Real. And just in time for Halloween, we're going to be covering five more great horror movie deaths. But first... We're going to talk about some social media, and I've got a review of the new 2021 Western film, Old Henry. I also have a review for the new Jake Gyllenhaal film, The Guilty, but that's going to be at the end of the show because it's going to be filled with spoilers, so if you haven't seen it and want to, I'll let you know when it's time to duck out, but I am going to tell you right here at the top, I'm going to eviscerate that shit. Last week's show with J.P. Sorrow from The Lapsed Fan had just an amazing response, and apparently... We missed a ton of films from our list that feature professional wrestlers. Over on Instagram, where you'll find the new Halloween-themed Force 5 logo, friend of the show and director of the horror film Unlisted owner Jed Bryan says, Santa with muscles. And although half of me kind of hopes you're joking, the other half also doesn't. Ben McIntyre says Rocky 3, the homie Brandon Becker throughout No Holds Barred. And over on Twitter, there were a lot of suggestions, including Mark Danger Watkins at Cuckfina, who said, An American Werewolf in London stars the late Brian Glover he used to wrestle when he wasn't acting. At Frank Gives Nuck says, Roadhouse got to love the Funker. Of course, he's talking about Terry Funk. Kevin Longshore said, Highlander, the wrestling is inconsequential to the film, but it's wonderfully hammy fun with great performances from Lambert, or Lambert, and Connery. And Ken Twix 12 said One Night in China, which didn't have enough plot for me, but I'm sure it's X-Pac's favorite. And one last one got a text from Paul Chasteen. Pauly, host of the now defunct but extremely funny and influential Paul Chasteen show. He was very unhappy with the list, said draft grade for the episode D. D as in a dump of shitty pics you served up. And when I asked him what was missing that got him so hot, he said Princess Bride. Unbelievable it didn't make either one of your top fives, you might as well have taken a deuce on the giant's grave with an honorable mention. Also, should have had Hogan in there for Rocky Three and not the fucking Gremlins. Thanks for the input, Polly. Love ya as always. Let's talk about 2021's Old Henry. Why'd you settle here? Up at dawn, working the crops, rain or shine. You'll discover there's worse arrangements. Cause a good man, Wyatt. I ain't him. Stop fretting about it. You know I saw what's in the back of that closet. I've done things I wish I could take back. I best go look for the rider. Laugh? Barely. What do you think happened? Some kind of shootout? Stay here and keep eye on him. In the Wild West, an old farmhand named Henry lives a quiet life with his son Wyatt. While out one morning, Henry finds a man presumed dead with a satchel full of cash nearby and brings them both home with him. Unfortunately, a trio of lawmen are looking for both of those things, and they're not going to leave Henry's farm without him. 
Tim Blake Nelson is a fantastic character actor, and I was glad to see him get a starring role here. He's brilliant as Henry, a crusty old man who really just wants to live the simple life, but has a strained relationship with his teenage son who wants more out of his life. Stephen Dorff is surprisingly good as Ketchum, a long-winded gruff with a duster and a sheriff's badge. The verbal exchanges between Ketchum and Henry are the best parts of this film, and that's saying a lot because this is a pretty good western overall. I like violent R-rated western films, and Old Henry definitely fits the bill. It's bloody, but never gratuitous. The film is a pretty slow build up until its climax, but feels well-earned and never bored me. Although the script is well-written, when it comes to dialogue, it runs into some predictable, well-worn territory for certain story beats, especially during the final showdown. It's essentially a dusty siege film that basically all takes place in or around Henry's house. I'm not sure if it was the editor or if the film played out as written, but there were some strange choices that I feel held old Henry back from being a great Western. The mysterious man who's recovering in their house has some flashbacks to his past that give us glimpses into his relationship with Henry, but they're totally unnecessary and, along with the newspaper clipping shown on the ground, actively take away from a reveal at the end of the film. I feel like I've been saying this a lot in, in my reviews lately, but it really feels like filmmakers just have no respect or confidence in their audience. And although Old Henry's was not as uh, egregious as The Guilty, uh, it just it, it felt a little cheap. Old Henry is a strong western that fans of the genre are sure to like. Tim Blake Nelson and the rest of the supporting cast do a really great job, and the dialogue is snappy and really brings you into the picture. If the director Pozzi Ponzaroli had a little more confidence in his film, I think it could have taken the movie from good to great. But Old Henry is still an easy film to recommend. It's almost time to get Thomas Stoneham Judge on the line to talk five more great horror movie deaths, but... Before you get into any movie-related list, you've got to kill your hunger. Luckily, I've got just the spot, the hottest, and coolest place to eat in Glendale. Today's sponsor, Jack Rabbit Slims. One step into Jack Rabbit Slims and you'll be teleported back to the 1950s, a simpler time when we didn't know cigarettes caused cancer. And the only things you really had to worry about were being blacklisted from Hollywood or getting something called polio. Sit at a table or inside one of the 50s-themed car booths and take in the sights and sounds of yesteryear. Who knows, your waiter might be JFK, Buddy Holly, or yes, even Marilyn Monroe herself. And if you come on Tuesday, bring your dancing shoes and join the twist contest. Win or lose, you're going home feeling like a winner. Head in and tell Richard Nixon that the Force 5 sent you for a buck off of Jack Rabbit Slim's famous $5 shakes. I guess that would make it a $4 shake. It might just be milk and ice cream, but it's a pretty fucking good milkshake. Jack Rabbit Slims. No squares allowed. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Thomas Stoneham Judge, a film critic, writer, and editor-in-chief for the fantastic website Movies for Real. How are you, Thomas? I am doing well. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on. You are fresh out of the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, I was hoping you would tell us more about your experience there. How was that for you? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. I've actually been on kind of this film festival trek since a lot of things have been happening uh, virtually and remotely. I've been able to cover a bunch. Um, So I did cover the Toronto International Film Festival remotely, and that was a really fun experience, especially with the fact that that their program so graciously uh, accepted me into their, uh, their media inclusion initiative this year. Um, and I was very, very grateful to be a part of that. It's such a, a fantastic program that uh, that is that's there to amplify minority voices and get more um, diversity in uh, in uh, journalism and film journalism. So I was very honored to be a part of that. Um, and the festival itself was just great. It had a great um, selection of films and uh, some really really fun things to watch. I got some good interviews in and. Uh, and I actually also just recently covered the Vancouver International Film Festival uh, and did that one in person, which had a lot of the things that went to TIFF. So um, I've seen a lot of movies in the past past couple months. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Uh, first off, congratulations on being a part of the Inclusive Initiative. I think that's really cool that TIFF did that. And that's actually how I found out about Movies for Real and your website. So uh, I hope that it's drawn even more attention to you and your work. If you don't mind me asking, what is the best thing that you've seen over the past, I guess, over those film festivals, both TIFF and Vancouver? So I've seen a lot of good things. Um, I will, and I've done this on like every video and, and media thing that I've done so far, is just plug Flea as like my favorite movie of the year. Um, but technically I watched Flea back in, at Sundance. It was uh, at TIFF and Vancouver. Um, so just ni- a, a, a nice honorable mention. I like that movie a lot. But you know, the one that really surprised me that I that I ended up uh, liking a lot more than I expected and actually turned out to be my favorite film um, at Vancouver and, and uh, maybe even over the past few weeks, I guess, would be uh, would be Memoria. Um, I can't pronounce the director's name. Hold on one second. Let me try this again. <laughs> if I try uh, phonetically. Um, a Pichapong Warasetakul. I think that's how yeah, you Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and there's no way that I could even pronounce this. <laughs> right. I'm not familiar with his work, so I haven't seen any of his movies before, but um, that, you know, I, I've heard a lot about, like, you know, the pacing of his films and kind of the style that he has. And and um, and so I, I went into it kind of hesitant, but throughout the film, it's, it's definitely kind of a, it's a meditative experience, which for a lot of people can be pretty frustrating for a two hour and 15 minute film. Um, but I got to the end of that with just this overwhelming, like, uh, appreciation for what I just sat through, um, which is, which is, um, not something that I feel all the time after a movie. And and it was kind of a surprise because I wasn't sure if I was going to like this one or not. Um, so Memoria, um, I apologize for, for using that one as my favorite so far, because the, uh, the release of that film is, uh, is a little unique, um, and, and might make it difficult for people to to see it. So if it does happen to play at a film festival ne- uh, near you, I, I strongly recommend giving it a try, seeing if it's if it's something you could appreciate. Cool. So those are Flea and Memoria. Memoria, I know the uh, the review came out on your website this week. So mm-hmm. if you want a little more in depth on that, go check out Movies for Real, and uh, that's R E E L for more mm-hmm. on Memoria. Yep. Tonight, we're doing top five. Well, we're doing five more because we've done this topic before. Five more horror movie death scenes. Obviously, it's Halloween season. Anything other than that inspire your topic tonight? You know, um, I 
thought of this because of Halloween. I think that it was uh, it's topical, and uh, I, I hope that people find some value in it this uh, this Halloween season. Um, but I think that this is also a good opportunity to uh, highlight some of the horror uh, thriller movies that I like, and maybe even shine some light on uh, on some death scenes that uh, that maybe have flown under some people's radars, or uh, or maybe even are uh, other people's favorites as well. Looking forward to getting into this. If you want to hear the first time that we talked death scenes, that was with Chef Nick Peters Bond, and uh, that was back in episode 49 in May. So we're going to give you a couple of new ones here that you can watch this Halloween. With that said, Thomas, are you ready to get into the list? You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. I am, and I'm hoping I don't duplicate any. I think I have a pretty unique list, and so hopefully I can introduce uh, some some new ones to the to the uh, to the collection. All right, I hope so. And like I like I said before we got on air, I don't know what you picked. You don't know what I picked. So uh, I'm going to go first, <laughs> and if one of us picks the same one, then we'll just both jump in and talk about it at the same time. But I'm going to kick things off. Traditionally, October is when the leaves start changing and it starts getting a little bit colder. And uh, that's where my first horror movie death comes in, in a very cold environment. Yes, this is 2010's Frozen. You guys sure about this? Yeah, yeah, it works all the time. All you have to do is go over there and you say like... I said that I could pay for all three lift tickets and then I left my credit card at the gas station. Right. Totally on money. Just not enough for all three. <laughs> Last run, gotta make it count. Frozen, this is not your Disney Frozen. This is Frozen, directed by Adam Green. It's a horror movie, and it's a contained film in which three people are stuck on a ski lift. Now, this is a a really unique premise. Like, how do you make a movie out of three people being stuck on a ski lift? But essentially, these these folks go out, they're having a good time, and because there's a mix-up with the lift operators... The lift stops with three people stuck on this lift. And at first they're joking around like, oh, you know, this is kind of funny. How long you think we're going to be stuck up here? But as the lights turn off, they realize nobody knows they're up here and nobody's coming to get them. And the mountain is going to be shut down for a week. So Dan, Joe and Parker can either act or freeze to death. And they start Talking about, you know, what the, what the hell are we going to do? And finally, Joe decides, I'm going to jump. Like, there's, there's, even if I hurt my leg, I'll crawl down the mountain. I'll get help. I got my snowboard with me. It's going to be fine. Well, Joe doesn't really understand physics. <laughs> and, 
And Joe takes the <laughs> leap. And they must be about 30 feet up in this ski lift. And Joe hits the frozen mountain. And when he does, his legs buckle underneath him and his bones pop out of his knees. So now Joe is sitting there in shock, his legs broken, and his two friends above looking at him. You know, it's 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 frozen tundra. You you can probably survive for a little bit. But then comes the horrific howling of wolves. And all of a sudden you see a pack of wolves closing in on Joe. And I think what makes this death so effective for me is him calling up to his friend Dan in the lift with his girlfriend Parker, telling Dan, don't let her look. What's wrong? Don't, don't. Yeah, man. Don't you let her look. Don't you fucking let her look. Dad. Dad. No, I won't, man. Don't, don't you let her look. Dan's got to hold her face to him so she doesn't look at her boyfriend being ripped apart by wolves. This is an extremely effective death scene from Adam Green, who you've probably seen movies from. Uh, He's done the Hatchet series, but this is him getting out of the sweaty swamp and into the complete opposite. And I thought this uh, this was a really entertaining movie, but this death scene really knocked it out of the park. Have you seen Frozen before? I have, and I'm I'm actually very happy you chose this one um, because um, I, I, as you were describing it, I'm, I'm snickering a little bit here because I know where it's going, um, and this <laughs> is a fantastic pick for you um, because uh, yeah, it is a very horrific death. I mean, first of all, you did mention like how do you make a movie out of like you know this very thin premise of getting stuck on a on a ski lift and i think that this death is kind of a pivotal moment in the movie when um when the characters are at this like very desperate moment uh, in this desperate time and even i don't think well the snow down there is probably solid like i don't think anyone <laughs> thinks about that it's just oh that's snow snow is usually fluffy i can fall down and like land in powder right but I guess it also makes sense that it's kind of that it's frozen and it probably wouldn't um, wouldn't be that uh, that comfortable to land on. And so when he hits the the ice and his legs buckle, there's this moment of like shock, like, oh, that hurt. But then there's also this moment of like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Why did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) And it sets it up really well because it doesn't show you that his bones popped out right away. It lets you no, linger on him just kind of in shock for a moment, which is really effective. Yeah, and I think you also make a good point. The The thing that makes this death scene so horrific isn't just, you know, the bones popping out or getting ripped up by by wolves, which, of course, are horrific uh, incidences. But then him calling up, don't let her look. Um, that certainly elevates this just to like a, a very memorable moment in this movie. Agreed. Underrated horror film Frozen. Watch it right before you take your your first ski trip of the winter. And I guarantee you, you're going to have you're going to look at those ski lifts in a different way. Uh, Thomas, what's your number five on five more amazing horror movie deaths? I went with a screen life film. And And I don't know, like, I think that this is one that kind of was a sleeper. Um, but, uh, it's a screen life film and it has to do with, uh, with these friends who are 
uh, on this like Skype call and, uh, and things get, um, uh, ominous when the, as they're talking about the, the death of a friend of theirs, um, the movie I'm talking about is Unfriended. You want to take some pictures? Post it. I need another drink. There's a lot of interesting deaths in this in this uh, movie, but the one that stands out to me and the one that I think of most vividly um, is the one with this character named Ken, who... Um, <laughs> in the film uh he he's like the next person that's going to die and so there is a glitch that happens in the computer uh and so you can't really see his screen uh when when the death starts but then there's glit like um glitches of him uh like dying and it's just this like really horrific scene of uh like him slamming against the computer and then this blender the blender is what gets me his hand is in a blender and it's mm. going and i cringe every time i think about it um so it's just i think when it comes to death scenes i don't need to see the whole death scene but when you give me like the right glimpses and glimmers at it especially when something's super horrific it's a jarring it's a really jarring kind of death um and 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 this guy's hand in this blender and it's going and it's just it makes me cringe even just thinking about it so um like i said there is a bunch of uh interesting and creative deaths in this movie um and shocking ones as well i think it's a it's a fun film to watch i'm a fan of screen life films um so it's a fun one to watch but that one death scene is the one that just makes me like shiver a little bit have you seen unfriended yet i have not but you're you're uh description of it makes me excited because i do like screen life movies the most recent one i've seen is host yes and i really liked that one but i have not yet gotten around to watching unfriended and i know there's also a sequel so i do need to get on the Mm -hmm. unfriended bandwagon here yeah it's fun um if you like screen life films i uh i i think this is uh it's not like groundbreaking in the sense of like how screen life has progressed but it certainly is an interesting concept with with interesting deaths and i think the 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 cast of characters here these like friends really sell um the the experience all right my number four is probably my most uh it's definitely my most bloody pick and this is from 2007's hostile 2 now I am not normally a, I guess they would call this genre torture porn, and I'm not normally into those movies, and there was kind of a big jump after Saw came out. You had Saw, and then you got Hostel, and then you got all these very similar movies, and Hostel 2 is a uh, a sequel, obviously, to Hostel, both directed by Eli Roth. The first one followed three males as they encountered this Hostel. And the second one follows three American female art students. And they're in Rome. They are sketching a nude model. And this model convinces them to come on a luxurious spa vacation in Slovakia. They, uh, you know, after some deliberation, they decide to go. And out of the three women, one of them named Lorna is really the most grounded. She's kind of awkward, very nerdy, a little shy. And I think she's probably the one that, that a lot of film goers would connect with most. These three ladies find themselves at a harvest festival when they get to Slovakia, 
and they say they're going to stay together, but of course this is a movie, and one of them decides to go off on her own, and she meets a male and agrees to go on a private boat ride with him in this river, which is the most dire mistake she will ever make, and the last mistake she will make as she is knocked out, and after a little bit of malarkey, she wakes up naked, hanging upside down over what looks like a communal spa. As we're introduced to the scene, she is literally strung up by a rope. She is tied up. She cannot use her arms. She has a gag over her mouth. And we see a woman walk in, stripped down naked, and then lay in the spa underneath Lorna. And next to her, she has a scythe. And she proceeds to take the scythe. First she toys with Lorna, but then she starts swiping at her back and making it rain blood on her. And she swipes like six or seven times, and at some point, this naked woman in the bottom of the spa is just covered in Lorna's blood as Lorna is screaming for her life, and she reaches up and slices open her neck and just like graphically sprays the rest of her blood all over her. It is called the bloodbath. It is as disturbing as, I mean, Hostile and Hostile 2 both have extremely disturbing deaths, but this one really stuck with me, and I think it was because Lorna was the character that I connected most with in a social setting, and it really affected me. That's Lorna's bloodbath in Hostile 2. That's interesting. I have not watched the Hostile movies yet. Um, I tend to... Um... I, I I tend to be more hesitant about the uh, the like you mentioned the torture porn kind of uh, horror movies. I like to have a little more substance to uh, to film, but um, mm-hmm. I I mean these hostile films are experiences, and that certainly sounds like a something to experience, <laughs> <laughs> like a very a very unique cinematic and uh, and horrific uh, experience. Yeah, and I saw this one in the theater with people, and I think that's the way that you need to watch these movies, because they're not nearly as fun if you're watching them by yourself. It's that communal experience of everybody kind of cringing and uh, and clinging to each other as this stuff happens that makes it so special. And if you're watching it alone on Netflix, it's definitely not going to have the same the same experience that makes these films worth it. And like I said at the top, I'm not really a torture porn movie kind of guy, but um, got dragged to this one, and although I didn't love the movie, this death scene has always stuck with me. So, number four for me, um, and this is one that a lot of people probably know, but um, I'm going to mention it because this was a, um, this, like, how it was depicted was much different than how I expected them to do it. In fact, we had conversations about how they were going to go about this scene uh, before the movie came out, um, and, you know, me talking to other movie friends about, like, well, what's the, you know, the... uh, audience sensitive way to, to talk about the scene and it is the georgie death scene in it chapter one what are you doing in the sewer a storm blew me away blew the whole circus away <laughs> can you smell the circus georgie there's peanuts cotton candy hot dogs and popcorn popcorn is that your favorite 
Mine too. <laughs> because they pop. <laughs> pop, 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 pop. <laughs> pop, pop, pop. <laughs> I like I've seen the 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 um 1990s version of of it, right? And you know, so I know that Georgie dies and so we're expecting that. I mean, obviously that's the that's the story here. Um but it was, you know, going into this, the boats floating down the river or the uh the street and while it's raining and Georgie goes to get it and he encounters uh you know Pennywise they have their conversation and it's eerie and and menacing and and all of that stuff right um and so when Georgie is reaching into the sewer to grab his boat i'm thinking okay well here they go they're about to cut away from what is about to happen and uh they don't it grows a whole bunch of <laughs> or pennywise grows a whole bunch of teeth and clamps down on Georgie's arm and now there's Georgie without an arm that we just watched, you know, get, get eaten from him. And then, you know, he's crawling away with one arm and Pennywise then stretches his, his, his arm out of the sewer into the street and drags him in. It is just, it's horrific for anyone uh, to watch anyone have to go through that. But it's Georgie, right? Like this, this like sweet and daring kid. And I just did not think they were going to kill him on screen. Um, and then they did. And now I'm scarred for life, even more than the original uh, TV series uh, scarred me because, you know, that was a, a frightful experience for me back in the 90s when I was a kid. Like, you know, I still like am afraid of that movie. But then they, then this comes out and the scene happens and, and, and now I have a whole nother reason to like, you know, have it uh, implanted in my brain. When you watch really any movie, but it, it kind of especially applies to horror movies, most of the time kids are off limits and this mm -hmm. scene let you know that in it nothing is off limits like everything is on the table and it's going to show you horrific imagery and this is the perfect way to kick off that movie i also agree very highly effective death scene and just a great pick for this list mm -hmm. well yeah for sure i'm i I, it, like you said, it sets a very, um, a very eye-opening tone for the rest of the of the movie and and the uh, second part as well. Now, this next one, I'll I'll start with my number three by asking you, Thomas, have you seen Cabin in the Woods from two thousand eleven? Yes, I have seen Cabin in the Woods. I can't wait to hear which death you pick. <laughs> All right, <laughs> listeners, look, listeners, if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods yet, uh, pause the podcast. Or skip ahead five minutes because this is an amazing movie. And I think if you're into horror movies, you owe it to yourself to give Cabin in the Woods a watch. It is just such a great send up of the Evil Dead style horny kids in the woods trope. And I'm going to have some major spoilers here. So if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, like I said, skip ahead five minutes or go watch the movie and come back. Cabin in the Woods posits a world in which all the movies that you're used to of these, you know, these kids coming to a random cabin in the woods, this is a world where a group of lab employees engineer these films essentially so that the world that they're in really isn't the world that they're in. For example, like the people in this lab remotely control the cabin. They add in things like pheromones to make people want to sleep with each other. They, they toy and tinker in different ways, and it goes so far as to show people like betting on what kind of monster is going to come into the scene. It's a really, really fun premise for a movie, 
and it's so well executed. It's one of my favorite horror films of the 2000s. And it's got a great cast. And one of these folks in this movie is somebody that everybody is now familiar with, Chris Hemsworth, who is a fantastic actor. You all probably love him as Thor, but in this movie he plays Kurt, and he is the jock of this film. As every, you know, 80s movie had the jock, he is the jock. He's fantastic in this role. And as things get underway and people in this environment start dying, the remaining survivors realize, like, they need to get out of these woods. And so they jump into an RV and they try to escape. And they're on their way out and their attempt is foiled because the tunnel that they needed to get through collapses. Again, it's the lab doing all of this. They trigger the collapse. Now they're stuck, and there's one hope left for an escape, a daring jump on a dirt bike. And of course, Kurt is the guy to do this. This is no problem for Kurt. He's made jumps longer than this. He even says that in the movie. And he says, you know, if if I hit the other side and I do wipe out, even if I'm hurt, I'm still going to get help. I'm your man. I got this. So he, uh, you know, he, he gets to a good distance, revs up that dirt bike and shoots the gap, and he's almost over, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a wall appears. He hits an invisible wall. As his friends watch, smacks it. I mean, he's basically disintegrated on this wall as his body just kind of like falls into the void below, and his friends watch in horror. It's one of those moments that comes kind of out of nowhere, because up to this moment, you you kind of like have an idea of what's going on, but you don't understand the depths of it. And his death is like, all right, these cats are all screwed. <laughs> There's no way out of here. This is a prison that these folks are in. And I remember watching this film being so amazed and so enamored with it. And this scene hit and it's like, oh man, this is, this is one of the greatest horror films I've seen in a very long time. Cabin in the Woods, 2011. Wow, what an experience. And I'm glad that you like it as well. Uh, it sounds like you had a really good time with Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, I had to take a couple of deep breaths because I realized I got really excited when you mentioned Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fantastic film. Uh, fantastic uh, from a horror perspective and fantastic from a comedy perspective. It's a, it's just a really great horror comedy, um, which, which can be hard to come by. Um, and so... Yeah, it plays with a lot of tropes, and and this particular scene uh, is 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 was is probably the the best thing, best one of the deaths to point out because of how surprising it was. Um, not only was that wall entirely unexpected, but the scene builds up to this jump being a success, right? I think, you know, everyone's <laughs> saying they're like, they're parting words before he goes to get help, and you know, the music's crescendoing. back never do The whole scene kind of lends itself to this, okay, what's going to go wrong kind of 
notion and you just but you have no idea until he hits that invisible wall and then it's like ah that's what you were setting it up for (laughs) it's just so surprising and so shocking and but so effective because you're right that's another pivotal moment uh in in this movie where the remaining characters realize well there is no hope at this point (laughs) (laughs) we're kind of screwed um and uh and so yeah that was a really really good one to point out so number three for me is one that many people may not have seen yet um and so i'm interested in um in uh expressing this one and telling people about it so there's this movie that came out a few years ago 2016 i believe um and it's called better watch out want to put her in the mood watch your horror movie do she's like twice our age i really don't think it's gonna happen she's here you are breathtaking <laughs> thank you now don't stay up and watch scary movies okay it'll give you nightmares again so what do you want to do Ricky, why can't you just leave me alone? He's such a jerk. Don't hang up on me. What was that? What the fuck? Oh my god. Get away from the window. There's someone there. Ashley! Are you hiding? Have you seen this? Better watch out. The uh, Christmas, it's a Christmas film? It's a Christmas film. Yes. Yeah, I have seen it, but I don't remember anything about it. That is okay. I'm going to tell you, and then you will remember. (laughs) (laughs) So there, um, the movie is about this babysitter who is babysitting um, uh, this, like, preteen while his parents are out at a Christmas party. Um, And it seems like a pretty straightforward gig, right? She comes in, um, watches him watch TV until it's time for him to go to bed. And, you know, she's, you know, she has her teenage drama going on with her boyfriend and whatever. Um, uh, But as it turns out, this kid kind of has a crush on her. And so the movie um, for like the first, I don't know, half of it is about this kid trying to like, I don't know, hook up with this girl or to like try to woo her. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's not working. Obviously he's too young. You know, she has other like boyfriend drama going on. And so, um, so that's, you know, kind of the premise here, but what, what ends up happening is this kid turns out to be a psycho. Like he, ha- he is, um, he, uh, I'm, I'm missing the word for like, has no emotional connection to anything like a sociopath sociopath yes so he's a sociopath he he he's not emotionally connected to anything everything he's doing is an act if he seems like he cares about someone it's it's all pretend right and so he just has no no empathy whatsoever and so there comes a point where he um you know the his plan has kind of gone awry and now he has um this babysitter uh and her boyfriend who ends up coming over to make make things right with her um he has them both hostage uh tied to chairs in the kitchen and he decides to do an experiment he drags the boyfriend's chair to underneath the um the the walkway uh, of the second floor and he sits it there and this kid's friend is just kind of down there like i don't know bsing with the guy while while this you know sociopath is, is upstairs doing stuff and so out of nowhere while this this friend and the boyfriend are bsing there is a bucket of paint that swings down and barely misses the boyfriend's face uh and oh, you're like yeah. no 
<laughs> no, that's not what's happening right now, is it? And that's what they say. They're like, you're not that's the phrase they say, uh, you're not home aloneing him, are you? <laughs> and so um ultimately, if you kind of get where this is going, he does finally swing the paint bucket uh at the, at the right way and with the right velocity to smash this boyfriend in the face. And and you don't see the smash happen, but the the remnants of this death is so horrific um, with ha- with the mix of, of blood and yellow paint uh, on the floor uh, and the boyfriend who obviously, you know, obviously dies from this impact, um, you know, as, as you might expect uh, it's just like the, the level of, uh, of sociopathicness you have to be to envision killing someone like this is is insane and and that kind of also sets this new tone in this movie for how crazy this kid can get now that you started talking about it when you said they were both tied up and the friend was there i was like oh my gosh now i remember and i knew it was going to be that paint can scene and i'm gonna have to go back on youtube and watch this scene because uh yeah i remember it being pretty horrifying it is. It really is. And and again, this is one of those things where I don't need to see like the whole thing happen. Um, but the like how it builds up to it and and then the aftermath and when uh, when the babysitter who finally gets free from the chair rushes over at the very last minute to, to stop it uh, and put it's too late, like the, all of that, the culmination of all of that is just this like, you know, cringeworthy kind of what the fuck is wrong with this kid? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. I got to go back and check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Number two for me. Number two for me. Have you seen Invisible Man from 2020? Yes. That was actually one of the last movies I watched before the shutdown happened. Yep. Same for me. As the attorney representing Adrian's trust, I'm required to read a prepared statement. Cecilia. Although our relationship was far from perfect, I thought that you would talk to me rather than run away. Are you okay? Open the door! What happened to him? He cut his wrists. Per his final wishes, you're getting $5 million. Contingent, of course, on the fine print. He can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent. It just doesn't make any sense. What? Adrian wouldn't kill himself. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? Don't let him haunt you. Hello? You know, I know a lot of people really love this movie, and overall, I think I was on mostly the opposite spectrum. Like, I, I thought it was really, really, really good in the first half in its depiction of spousal trauma, and personally, I thought it kind of fell apart in the second half, but... The inciting incident for that second half is an absolutely fantastic kill. So just to set up Invisible Man, this remake has Elizabeth Moss in it. She plays somebody named Cecilia, who in the very beginning of the movie, she escapes from her very rich, but also very violent and controlling husband, who then seemingly commits suicide a few weeks after she's left him. And she believes that her ex-husband, or her current husband, I guess, faked his death and used his optics expertise to become invisible in order to torment her. And of course, nobody believes her. 
and uh you know she's she's really distressed and she decides i'm gonna go to his house to find evidence and she goes breaks into his house and she does find this suit that's essentially outfitted with cameras that allows it to appear invisible to the human eyes when activated so she's got to tell somebody this news so what do you do you you get a hold of your sister and you tell her hey let's meet in a public place so they go to this restaurant because nothing's going to happen bad in a public place surrounded by other people she meets her sister they're sitting at the table and she is explaining to her sister what she found and she's deep into this conversation and the sister is you know she's listening intently and all of a sudden we see her sister emily is kind of like not paying complete attention and she sort of starts to look confused and Cecilia is like, what? And then we see this floating knife beside Cecilia's head. And in the blink of an eye, like you never see it coming. In the blink of an eye, the knife slashes Emily's throat. And then the knife is so quickly placed into Cecilia's hand. And other people eating look over and see Emily bleeding out on the table and Cecilia with the knife in her hand. And you realize like, holy shit. Like, things just got turned up another notch. It's a death that uh, I remember, just like you, watching it in theaters. And I'm sure your theater had the same reaction, where it was just like a a communal gasp. Because now it's like, okay, (laughs) we have no idea where this film is going. And like I said, I I didn't really love the second half, but I still think it's a, a movie worth watching. And I think the first half of this film is really masterfully done. But uh, yeah, that's my number two, Invisible Man, Emily's Death in the Restaurant. Excellent number two. Um, I think, so this movie, I I wish I had liked it more. I do think that the, I wish that the ending could have been a little more creative. Um, and because I, I kind of saw where that was going pretty, uh, a little bit too early. So there's that. And and unfortunately, I I felt like the trailer spoiled a lot of the, um a lot of the big moments in that movie this was Mm. not one of them (laughs) okay i had i had no idea what like that this was going to happen and it is so shocking because it does happen so quickly and this is another thing where you think you're in the clear right you're in a public place this is a restaurant that you know if anything happens everyone's going to see it and so how can anything happen this is a safe space um yeah and this movie kind of slashed that idea um, because <laughs> because that it does happen so quickly like there's this conversation you think you're safe and then there's the look of horror and then the what and then her neck slash and then emily moss is holding the knife and you're just like well there's no way to explain that <laughs> <laughs> you yep. know the whole theater yep. gasps and then everyone kind of comes to terms with what just happened it's like yeah girl i don't know how you're gonna get out of that one <laughs> Yeah, like you said, it's it's the safe space and you think they're there kind of for an exposition dump and then she's just mm-hmm. dead out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So that fantastic choice. So number two for me um, was quite traumatizing because this movie builds to this this boiling point that is that is just so um, with so much tension and so much emotional like uh like heartache and 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 you know pressure and stuff so um i'm going to talk about a scene in mother by darren aronofsky 
We spend all our time here. I want to make a paradise. She redid all of it. Every last detail. Well, she breathed life back into every room. Are you happy? I love you. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just gonna let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? And that is after um, Mother had given birth to her baby. Um, so kind of setting up this movie, there's, there's a lot going on in this film. I don't even know if I can explain it all. But essentially, the, <laughs> the, the, frame, the framework is that there is um, this couple who live in this house. Um, and um, events um, begin to happen in this house that escalate to bigger events and more people and more um, you know, damage happening to this house and more uh, just like more chaos happening. And it just, it, it grows to this level of insane, um, like unreal chaos happening it, within this house. And in the middle of this, um, uh, Jennifer Lawrence plays, plays mother. Uh, and um, in the middle of all this chaos that has escalated to an, to an unmanageable point, um, she has a baby um and kind of back to the idea that kids are off limits um this movie nothing is off limits and at this point you kind of understand that but what happens is this mob that is the chaos happening in this house ends uh um ends up getting a hold of the baby uh um him who is uh mother's partner they have these like uh ambiguous names uh he like he takes the child and like uh, uh, displays it to the crowd and the crowd kind of considers this child like their savior. And then they like crowd surf it away while uh, Jennifer Lawrence is trying to go get her baby that they're crowd surfing and it's delicate and it's just born and what's happening. And then the baby is dead. (laughs) Jesus. I didn't, I didn't even know how to process that. Um, I'm sorry. I guess I should have said spoiler alert because um, I don't (laughs) think think it's it's spoiler. Yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler to, I mean, it's a spoiler, but there's a lot going on in this film where this is a a pretty, it's a big moment, but it also leads to more, um, uh, kind of more messaging on, on what Darren Aronofsky's trying to like imply or whatever. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's such a horrific thing because, uh, because of how swiftly it happens and how aggressively it happens and, and also just how much chaos is, is happening around this. Um, anyway, this movie is insane. And you have to kind of <laughs> emotionally brace yourself for exactly how insane it gets with the with the amount of chaos that happens. And this this baby death scene is uh, is kind of the, the pinnacle of how um, uh, how out of control this whole situation is. And so, yeah, mother. <laughs> Mother from 2017. I have not seen it yet, but uh, it sounds insane. It I, I can't even find the right words to, to explain how insane this movie gets. Um, and there's it's I mean it's an allegory for uh, stuff. I don't know. You can interpret it how you will. There's it's, it's pretty abstract um, in like what it's trying to communicate. Um, I think I'm sure some listeners might might push back. I don't know. <laughs> Message me at moviesforreal.net and 
<laughs> and explain more about how this movie uh, was supposed to like come together and be something that was a, a logical experience. You heard him. Go argue with him at uh, being TSJ on Twitter. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Time for the grand finale. Number one on my list of five more horror movie deaths. Now, in the very first one of these, I mentioned the gymnastic scene from Final Destination 5. I said that I have a soft spot for the Final Destination movies. I think they are so fun. And I think that number five really, really brings out that fun. I think it's an excellent entry in the series, and it is my favorite in the series. And I could not feel good about myself without including the eye doctor scene from Final Destination 5. Who's that? Relax. You know, it looks a lot worse than it really is. Okay, I'm gently going to position your head. And I want you to tell me when this feels snug. I can't move my head. Perfect. Just what we want. There we go. Okay, now comes the fun part. Here comes the drop. And you will feel a little numbness in your eye, which is a good thing. Eye trauma is a trigger for many people when it comes to horror, and I am no different here. And we've got a character that is getting LASIK surgery. So she's getting laser eye surgery. She gets onto the table. Her head is locked into place and her eyeball or like her eye is being held open by a speculum. And the doctor's like, oh, I forgot something in my chart. Got to go out for a second. And he leaves the room. And that's when your final destination Rube Goldberg domino effect begins. So she is obviously nervous. She's having eye surgery. So she's squeezing this teddy bear out of nervousness. And as she does that, one she's, she's like pulling on one of its eyes, and that eye falls on the floor. And already a bad omen, an eye falling on the floor. And, uh, you know, the eye doctor is still gone. He's consulting his secretary, and this cup of water that she left on top of a water cooler falls over when the cooler bubbles, and the cup spills onto the power unit of the laser machine, which increases the power on it and the, the machine starts to shake. So already you're thinking like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And she's reaching for the emergency stop button. She's like panicking, knocks it onto the floor, pressing the button to activate it. And the laser starts going straight into her eye, which she can't close. And she's like trying to get free. She she puts her uh, her hand up, which is searing her hand now so her eye is blinded and finally she's like screaming she gets her head released from the clamp and she gets off the table and you're thinking well i mean she's blind but if well she's blind in one eye but she's alive and she's stumbling around and she slips on the glass teddy bear eye that she picked off stumbles out the window and falls four stories down onto a windshield below killing her instantly of course the um the other fun part of the scene is that when she hits the car her good eyeball pops out and, and hits the ground which a car then runs over the final destination films are all about fun crazy deaths and i think this one ratchets up the suspension in just a fantastic way any any list of death scenes has to have a final destination death scene like that's <laughs> 
Final Destination is so proficient at uh, at these really creative death scenes. And I mean, I'm indifferent about the the storyline, especially after the second one. Um, but you, you, there comes a point where you oh, don't yeah. go to the movie anymore for the storyline. <laughs> you go for how wild and crazy the death scenes are. Um, so, yes, I... And, and and I guess the other the the side effect of that is that these movies kind of blend together for me. So I oh, know yeah. that scene, but I could not tell you if it was in Final Destination three or Final Destination nine. Um, I don't know which Final Destination they're on anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of these scenes, and uh, and they kind of blend together. But I do remember this scene, and uh, yeah, I trauma like you don't you don't like to think about that. There's it's a squeamishness that that happens with me on that so my number one and maybe this was said on this on this show before i can pick a, a i can obviously pick any other final destination uh a scene but the one that has always stood out to me and the one that even has that actually has like traumatized me enough to change my behavior uh was was the opening death scenes of final destination 2 uh with the log truck has anyone talked about that on here yet uh, you know, not on a best death scenes. I think it's been brought up, but gosh, I mean, what a fantastic scene. What's going on here? There's going to be a huge pileup. I saw it. There were bodies everywhere. There were logs. I, I saw it. It just happened. All right, miss, I'd like you to please step out of the vehicle. <laughs> You need to stop that I truck. I you again, you have to calm down. Why won't you listen to me? Fantastic scene in the sense that I will never drive behind a a log truck ever again. I don't like I see him down the road. I get in the next lane. I pass them very quickly um, because I will not be behind that truck when that log rolls off, rolls off, which at some point it's inevitably going to do because Final Destination told me. <laughs> And uh, I'm just not about to be a part of that. Like that, it, it, it's literally something that has changed my behavior. Like with driving, I, I don't drive behind log trucks, and I'm usually really good at like parsing out the difference between like, oh, okay, like this happened in a movie, and this could actually happen in real life. Like that that log truck scene is just one that I have categorized, and that could happen in real life. Um, and I don't know like what the odds are of that, but they're strong enough to me uh, after that scene that I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to play it safe and never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Good call, man. I I, uh, love this scene as well. And it changed my wife's driving, driving habits as well. She will not drive behind log trucks either. So no doubt that there are thousands, if not millions of people who have changed their driving habits. Thanks to final destination too. So thanks filmmakers for making the roads a little bit safer. It's actually it's really funny um, because I so I've always had this like, you know, like unreasonable fear of logs falling off of log trucks. But, you know, Final Destination 2 came out almost 20 years ago. Right. So I'm kind of finally getting over it. And I find this TikTok video with a log through the windshield of a van in a log truck, you know, on the side of the highway. And I'm like, OK, so proof. Uh, (laughs) final destination was right to that (laughs) you don't drive behind log trucks tiktok told me (laughs) somebody didn't watch final destination 2 that guy (laughs) exactly (laughs) (laughs) thomas amazing list 
Thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, we want people to go to Movies For Real. That's movies, F-O-R-R-E-E-L dot net. Uh, what else do you want to plug tonight, if anything? Yeah, you know, we talked about film festivals. So um, uh, I have a bunch of coverage on uh, from my website that is... Uh, um, that's covering those uh, reviews, interviews, um, and uh, uh, various content about the festivals. Um, I expect to be covering Raindance uh, Film Festival uh, next week. So looking forward to that. Um, you know, my life has just been full of film festivals. And so if you're interested in, in what is uh, gaining some, some early uh, buzz before it hits the mainstream or before it hits the, the um, Oscar trail, um, yeah, check out what I'm what I'm covering on uh, moviesforreal.net, and of course, uh, connect with um, our website on social media uh, at moviesforreal on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and uh, and you can follow our content there, and you can also follow me personally at being tsj on Twitter and Instagram. One more time to recap, my list had death scenes from 2010's Frozen, Hostel 2, Cabin in the Woods, The Invisible Man from 2020, and my number one was the eye doctor scene from Final Destination 5. Thomas's list had deaths from Unfriended, It Chapter 1, Better Watch Out, Mother, and the log truck scene from Final Destination 2. And remember, again, after the music hits, I've still got a review for the 2021 film The Guilty, so stay tuned for that. What's your favorite horror movie death scene? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the show. And make sure to check out the new Halloween logo. I'm also pretty active now on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com backslash Force5 if you want a sneak peek at what I've been watching and what I might be reviewing on next week's show. And of course, if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you get your podcast served up and tell your friends to listen as well. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and stick around for a review of The Guilty. Force 5. 911, this is emergency operator 625. I've just erupted. Okay, sir, I don't even know where you are. Last name? This is the fire department. No, ma'am, you've reached 911, but I can connect you to fire. Just hold the line. What does she look like? She was tall, pink hair, in heels. Hey, man, can you tell me how long it's going to take? 911, what is the address of your emergency? I just want to talk to you. Okay, I'm hanging up. Just stop for a drive, sweetie, okay? Is there someone with you? Uh-huh. Does the person with know you called us? No. Who do they think you called? Your child? Yes, sweetie. Does the person you're with have a weapon? Yes. I need the color of the car, okay? When I say the right one, say it's fine. Red? White? It's fine. Is it a car? No, man. What? No, just yes or no, just yes or no answers, Emma. I'm sorry, I have to hang on. Give me the phone right now. I'm gonna die. A police officer relegated to 911 duty races against the clock to save a kidnapped woman from the confines of his office by using clues from the phone call and using his outside resources. If you take the guilty at face value, it's a decent thriller with an unexpected twist or two led by a fantastic lead actor in Jake Gyllenhaal. It was filmed during the pandemic uh, for Netflix and feels claustrophobic as it was shot in a very limited time and it all takes place in one location. Jake Gyllenhaal plays Joe Baylor, an intense police officer with a bad attitude and an empty coffee cup. He lashes out at everyone in the call center, and we quickly learn it's because he doesn't want to be there. He's used to being out on the streets, and he's on phone duty because of punishment. 
He takes a couple of routine calls, snickering at some of the downtrodden before we get to the heart of our story. A woman calls in, she's been abducted. Joe makes it his personal mission to track her down. Hall is one of my favorite working actors, and he definitely gets a chance to shine again as he goes from an inconsiderate dickhead to an inconsiderate dickhead who wants people to do things for him to a blubbering mess. Most of the other characters get minimal screen time, and certain big-name actors are relegated to a sentence or two on the phone like Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano. Easy work or favors called in by the director Antoine Fuqua, I'm sure. In terms of how the film unfolds, again, if you take the film at face value, it's probably going to be a pretty tense ride for most people with a rewarding and socially relevant ending. We see Baylor working the phones by looking only at what's in front of him and jumping to conclusions, acting without thinking, mirroring his behavior that we can assume landed him in phone jail to begin with. However, here's the rub. This is a remake of The Guilty, a 2018 Dutch film that I've seen. And because I have that context, there are some things about this movie that bugged the shit out of me. The fact that Nick Pizzolatto was given a screenplay credit seems a bit of a stretch considering it's basically word for word, beat for beat, the same exact film until the last 10 minutes, when everyone involved in this remake decided that the American version needed to be way worse than the original. Like many remakes, they treat the Guilty's new intended audience like idiots and decided to make the ending fluffier so that we're nice and relieved as the credits roll. In both versions of the film, we know that our main character has done something pretty bad to get put on desk duty because a reporter calls to get his side of the story. Angrily, he hangs up with a line about no comment. We get it. He's in trouble. In the Dutch film, that's all we hear from the reporter. In the American version, we get several calls with the reporter, just in case your dumbass forgot that there was a reporter and that she called him the first time. In the original, we never leave the phone room. In this one, as the police officers pull over a van, we kind of see the police pulling the van over, but the film never even commits to leaving the room. It's only one instance, and it's so absolutely unnecessary, as if the filmmakers were saying, look, this is actually happening. There's stuff going on outside of this room. When it probably would have been just way more effective to have Gyllenhaal listening to the interaction on his headset. Now, those are small examples, but the ending is the most egregious example of making what was once good fucking terrible. In the original film, in order to stop the woman from committing suicide, Asker Holm, the main character in that one, tells her what he's done. He reveals the mystery we've all been wondering about to connect with her and stop her from doing what she's about to do. He killed a man in the line of duty and he knows that it was wrong. In the original, he admits this out loud in front of his peers as they watch on in icy silence. It's a moment of catharsis and a moment of him telling everybody he's guilty. It's highly effective. In the American version, he tells her in a room by himself, and then after some self-reflection in the bathroom, he calls the reporter, and then we get an audio over the credit crawl that says he's pled guilty to manslaughter. The film also seems to want you to sympathize with cops killing people, as in the lead-up, it throws a bowl of plot spaghetti at you to see what will tug on your fragile little heartstrings. Is it the fact that he has asthma? Is that something that'll stick? Because that wasn't in the original and doesn't add anything here, even though it continuously shows his inhaler. Or maybe the fact that Baylor may have PTSD will get you, since we see him staring longingly at a mental health board through the window on a break room door. Or maybe it's his beautiful baby girl that he isn't allowed to talk to that'll move you. Aw, oh, such a good man, though. He told his old partner not to lie in the stand and is going to take responsibility for his actions. What a good cop. 
The original film ended with both hope and great sadness. Sure, Holmes stopped the woman from killing herself, but it was a hollow victory as we had found out earlier that she had actually killed her, her infant son. In this film, it went the exact same way until the end when we have an officer walk in to tell Baylor that the baby lived after all and is currently in the ICU recovering. By that point, we had reckoned with the fact that this woman had murdered her child because she's mentally unstable, and as an audience, we didn't need the happy ending. The Guilty is another in the long list of remakes that is far worse than the original. The filmmakers toss all of the trust that the original gave its audience into the trash can and then tries to make you sympathize with a cop who unjustly killed a 19-year-old kid. Fuck this movie. Go watch the original instead.